0: Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles, and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our Plain Sight with 2020 Vision. Let's go. So thank you so much, Francis, for sitting down with me and offering to go into the vision on some different business units, particularly the business units we want to talk today about are Ascendancy, Visionary, and Ultimate Bank. Uh, I'm most excited about learning about Ultimate Bank because it seems so relevant to a lot of the financial stuff that we talked about. So can we start with that? What uh, What
1: is your high-level take on Ultimate Bank and what it does? Great. Before we go into the individual business units, let's give the listeners some context. Would you mind if we do that first? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Let's zoom out. Um, Why are we starting different businesses? Invisible is about eight years into its journey. It's profitable. It's scaling. We have about 2000 people at the company. We're fully remote. And we don't plan on IPOing. We don't plan on selling. We bought back. 25% of the company from investors in 2021 and 2022. We now own 75% of it within the partnership. We're building a multi-generational private partnership. Our core platform is a futuristic outsourcing company. We built a digital assembly line so we can go person by person, team by team, department by department in any company and break down your processes into steps like Legos in our process builder software. We've integrated 300 plus third-party automation and AI tools and um, whatever steps we can't automate uh, with our automation team or our process builder, we uh, solve the last mile problem with uh, user interfaces that we build for our workers. And we have masters and PhDs on the assembly line so we can do a huge range of work we pay our agents based on speed quality and complexity we call it results based agent pay and we charge our clients on a results basis as well so instead of billing our clients by the hour we bill them by the unit which aligns our incentives with the results we serve everyone from the largest ai foundational model companies including open ai and I can't mention our other AI training clients yet, but um, we're a leader in that space. Um, but also, uh, retail giants, um, logistics uh, powerhouses like DoorDash and Grubhub, and uh, financial services companies like American Family Insurance, NASDAQ. And uh, we also have clients in real estate and healthcare. So, literally, any function, any industry, any process. The outsourcing industry is very large. It's the BPO, core BPO industry is scaling to half a trillion of revenue by the end of 2030. Um, and traditional outsourcing companies are not tech companies and they bill by the hour. So their incentives are misaligned with clients. So those are the blockbusters that we're disrupting like Netflix. And then... Technology companies love building tools. VCs love investing in Series A, Series B, Series C, you know, uh, in SaaS companies, enterprise, B2B, enterprise, SaaS. Um, But VCs hate services. They assume services is not scalable. They assume it's low margin. um, And it's messy. It's hard to underwrite product market fit. Um, So we are able to provide an end-to-end solution uh, in an age where there are more and more tools to the point where if there's an app for everything, why isn't everything perfect yet? So as long as we continue to live in a world where there's not one tool that does everything, you're going to need Invisible to stitch them all together, do whatever automations we can do on top, and keep building our step library. We think of it as sequencing the enterprise process genome. The more companies use Invisible, the more we can reuse automations and provide more and more powerful end-to-end solutions. So we have a moat um, uh, that, and we're sort of disrupting the outsourcing industry on the pure services side. And we're able to use and bring to bear all the technology companies and all the technologies that are being built without being competitive with them. That's our market position. That's our platform. We um, have um, an int- like a really powerful position. And from this position, we're uniquely set up to build an innovation platform. And so over the course of the next eight years, what we're doing is turning our company into a holding company. So Invisible is just gonna be one business inside of the holding company. The holding company is called Infinity. And uh, Invisible as its first business is counterposition against Accenture, which is the biggest BPO in the world. But now we're gonna start taking individual functions inside of Invisible And preparing them for commercialization, preparing them to be standalone businesses. So, before we talk about visionary ascendancy and ultimate, let's talk about um, legendary, which is our code name for our hiring function. So, our hiring function is run by Mark Ray. He's based in Copenhagen, Uh, he's a Turkish Irish um, uh, technology executive who married a beautiful Danish lady and moved to Copenhagen. and He joined us about a year ago and he's helped us um, uh, scale. In one quarter, he was able to hire 600 masters and PhDs for a a client. That uh, ability to hire efficiently um, is something that we're dependent on. If we didn't have our internal hiring function, we would not be able to run our own business. There's no external vendor that could give us hiring results at with these capabilities and this at this price that would allow our whole business model to work. So we're really dependent on our, we don't have a BATNA. That internal hiring function is um, essential for running our whole business. And so it's actually a, a meaningful percentage of our enterprise value is, is in that function. And we're just getting started in in building this function, we have all sorts of ideas for how to build it. but we realized that um, instead of just keeping it to ourselves, if Mark Gray provides hiring as a service to invisible using invisible, then why can't he provide hiring as a service to other companies using invisible? So we've just we're just about to land a huge deal that in and of itself, we'll double our headcount. Um, just selling hiring as a standalone service without, if, if invisible is ops as a service, we're not selling ops as a service on this deal. It's just hiring as a service. So that is an example of taking a cost center, turning it into a business unit and commercializing um, a function. And from a corporate structure point of view, we are going through the exercise of building a a company inside of the company, an LLC, assigning a valuation to that LLC, and having Mark and his team have equity in that LLC and have performance-based grants. So that as they 10x the value of that business unit, we take some dilution and give them equity in that business unit. So instead of them just having equity at TopCo, they'll have equity in, in their unit that transforms their psychology. Suddenly they think of themselves as a large part of a small thing instead of a small part of a large thing that I think of as almost like anti-aging technology. It's like some magical skin cream that will keep you young forever. (laughs) Um, And we're always thinking about how to use incentives and use myth to like keep the company entrepreneurial forever. Um, When you start a company, you have 100% of the equity, you have full ownership, you're all in, and you are willing to take big risks uh, because you have everything to win. Most companies over time lose that entrepreneurial edge. And there, there's a good incentive reasons for that. There's also good, there's also cultural reasons for that. So we're trying to combat that entropy. We're trying to be an anti-entropic force. So we're doing perf- long-term performance-based grants at the Topco. So as we scale our overall company to a trillion dollar valuation, we're going to take 60% dilution That. Is a ten thousand x journey from a hundred million valuation to a trillion. Ten thousand x appreciation, sixty percent dilution. It nets out to two thousand five hundred x appreciation uh, for a passive shareholder. If you if you were just getting diluted, this is much less dilution than the standard venture model. Um, and um, and I wrote a piece that I think you know is a good companion for this podcast called The Sovereignty Game. And Stuart, if you include the link to that, you'll see the full breakdown of like the logic there. But in addition to performance-based, long-term performance-based equity grants at Topco, we're doing long-term performance-based equity grants at each business unit. So we're taking the same principle and making it fractal. Um, for the same reason that a passive shareholder would be happy with dilution if they got 10,000x appreciation, so so 2,500x net accretion. At Topco, the same logic is true for Topco being diluted by a BU. You start out owning 100% of hiring as a service. Over time, Topco may own only 25% of hiring as a service. But if hiring as a service has become... 10,000 times more valuable in the process, it's a win-win-win. Okay, that was all a setup um, so that our listeners can understand the basic concepts we're working with here in terms of like, you know, why we're building business units and how we're thinking about this. Um, Are there any other sort of foundational concepts? I think there's one other one, the concept of capital allocation, and the concept of defensibility and the concept of segmentation. These three concepts are associated with three authors. Capital allocation is associated with Will Thorndike. Defensibility is associated with Hamilton Helmer. Segmentation is associated with Clayton Christensen and the Innovator's Dilemma. So the three books are Outsiders by Will Thorndike, Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer and The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. How do these relate to our business? Briefly. Um, Outsiders. In Outsiders, Thorndike reviews eight different companies. These are 20th century companies that massively outperformed the S&P 500 during their tenure. They were long-term compounders. So the results are truly astonishing when you were dramatically outperforming the S P 500 for a very long time. The compounding is incredible. They, uh, none of these, um, the companies are just off the top of my head, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, General Dynamics, which is a defense contractor, the Washington Post, Capital Cities, which was a radio business that eventually bought ABC, um, Teledyne, and i forget what the other ones are um there's a there's a list there's a playbook in the book but the core one of the core concepts is capital allocation and the idea with capital allocation is as as a board boards run companies when you're running a company one of the main decisions you have as a board is not just the decision to Uh, hire or fire the CEO and other members of the leadership team. Um, You also have a decision around how to allocate capital. You have basically six options on that menu. The first option is to keep capital on the balance sheet. Do nothing with it. The balance sheet is kind of like a war chest. The second option is to... um, provide liquidity to shareholders, distribute the capital on the balance sheet to the owners of the business in the form of a dividend or in the form of buybacks. The third option is to pay down debt. The fourth option is to acquire a company. or uh or to make a minority investment um the fifth option is to um uh start a new company the sixth option is to invest in one of your existing companies um and and make some investment that's going to result in further scale so one more time Balance sheet, provide liquidity to equity, pay down debt, make investments, including m a start new companies, innovate, or invest in scale. Reinvest in the business and scale. Six options. We have an allocation committee that's chaired by Will Thorndike. <laughs> he invested in our business in January. Um, and uh, he's got a great podcast called 50X. Highly recommend it. It's really a unique and special thing to read the book. The author's alive. You get in touch with the author. They invest, and then you're doing business with them. He invests over. He really looks for companies that are um, able to become category-defining, transformative companies, which ours is, and have very long-term time horizons. The interesting thing about outsiders, there are no other companies. There are no companies in that book that are software uh, based technology companies. So this, this game we're calling the sovereignty game is very different than the venture game. And going back to that piece that I wrote, the sovereignty game is, is actually a very old game. It's older than the venture game. It goes all the way back to the Medici's even before that it's the oldest game in business. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, it is m- more well understood by private equity people um, than it is by venture people. And I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but the essential difference is profitability and time horizon. Um, and sort of time horizon is driven by exit or liquidity. So in the venture game, you really just focus on IPOing or selling your company. And so you have a five to seven year time horizon. In the sovereignty game, you're playing an infinite game. There's there, you're not never planning on necessarily selling your business or IPOing your business. And you're you're actually trying to build enterprise value. And if you're going to get liquidity, it'll be in the form of secondaries, dividends, buybacks. So that's capital allocation. How does that relate to infinity? Well, infinity is like the Berkshire Hathaway of tech. That's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to disrupt the entire services industry, not just BPO. So BPO is one category of many. If you take all of professional services, if BPO is half a trillion a year, all of professional services is several trillion a year. Six trillion, I think, is the number that I last looked at. To put that in perspective, the global economy is a hundred trillion dollar global economy. That's global GDP. Knowledge work, it, we is estimated at at least thirty trillion of that, excluding China knowledge work is 20 trillion. So professional services is 6 trillion. Um, Doing some math uh, sounds like just over 30%. So 20 divided by 6. Yeah, uh, that's right. Um, uh, 30%. So that's interesting. 70% of knowledge work is in-house. 30% of knowledge work is outsourced. Why isn't that ratio different? Why isn't 50% of knowledge work outsourced? Why isn't 70% of knowledge work outsourced? There was an economist named Ronald Coase who wrote The Theory of the Firm, and he talked about uh, coordination costs, switching costs, integration costs, other frictions between supply and demand that sort of end up determining how big companies get and what gets outsourced versus what stays inside the company. Invisible is a very cozy in company um, in the sense that if you can provide a truly transformative breakthrough in, in outsourcing, how outsourcing is done, the capabilities of outsourcing, the price point, the alignment, the engagement model, then you end up outsourcing more work and shifting that that model. So you end up with companies that are more focused on their core business and spend less time reinventing the wheel, doing things that other companies have done. So why do you need to build a hiring team if we've already built a better one that you could never build? Um, Why do you need to build an ops team if we've already built a better one that you could never build? So on and so forth. Now we're going to apply that to knowledge management, which is your business unit. Why do you need to build a knowledge management function if we've already built a better one? And why do you need to build a research function if we've already built a better one? So on and so forth. Um, Why do you need to build a finance function if we've already built a better one? You can have a smaller one. You can just, your your team suddenly just becomes the client and can focus. We give you leverage. And this is not just because we're a great services company. All of these functions are powered by technology. So... um, Going back to the capital allocation idea and how it applies to Invisible and Infinity as a holding company, Infinity is our capital allocator. And by setting up different businesses inside of the company, we're creating internal competition between those business units. So our hiring function is competing with our operations function, is competing with our training function, is competing with our finance function, is competing with our research function, is competing with our knowledge management function, so on and so forth for every dollar. So we get to make a decision of, should we keep that dollar on balance sheet to grow cash? Should we pay down our debt? Should we buy a BPO? Should we uh, invest in another company? Should we um, provide liquidity? with that dollar? Should we um, uh, invest in one of our scale units or should we innovate on a new unit? We've created a menu and over time by making those decisions intelligently, we are following the outsider's playbook and we should dramatically outperform. We're at the very beginning of this journey, why? Because We're only just starting to generate meaningful profit. We've been profitable now for two years. This month, it's our two-year anniversary. We became profitable at the end of June 2021. It's June 2023, June 1st. So in 2021, we broke even. Um, uh, I think on the year... uh, we lost half a million, but like the second half of that year was profitable. In 2022, we generated a million of profit after bonuses. This year we're shooting for eight to 12 million of profit. Next year will be very significant. So next year we're gonna be shooting for, call it 25% operating profit on the bottom line, if not higher in terms of margins on we're shooting for a hundred mil run rate by the end of this year. We're at a 50 mil run rate now. Um, We could exceed that by the end of next year, we'd want to at least double. So minimum of a 200 mil run rate, cumulative revenue ends up being less than run rate. So let's just, I'm doing I'm guessing, let's just say it ends up being 140 mil cumulative, 150 mil cumulative 25% of that. Is what, um, thirty-five million dollars. I'm being conservative because the growth rate so fast, and and who knows what it will actually be. But that's the that's the sense. Now you see how this financial physics works. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the basics of, um financial statements. You have your income statement, your balance sheet, your cash flows. And for your income statement, you have revenues, you subtract your cost of goods sold, you get your gross margins, you subtract your um, cost of revenue. So sales, marketing, customer support, anything that goes into gaining clients, servicing clients, um, uh, that then that you're basically your growth budget, then you get your contribution margins. And then you subtract your GNA and your R&D and you get your operating margins. And then you subtract your cost of capital um, and um, taxes and you get your net. The nature of an income statement is that as you scale revenue to infinity, your operating margins asymptotically approach your contribution margins. Your overhead collapses as a percentage of revenue because overhead by definition does not scale linearly as revenue scales so certain certain costs scale in some proportion with revenue that's very linear and very predictable apple sells iPhones each iphone has a cost of manufacturing they can work on improving those costs but these are costs there's a cost of goods sold Whereas every single time you do a Google search, Google does not need to hire 0.1, 0.001 more engineer. Those investments are are overhead investments. And so as a percentage of revenue, they shrink and shrink and shrink over time, even as they're growing in absolute dollars. So you can put more and more dollars towards R&D, but as a percentage of your overall business is shrinking. This is elementary for people who know finance well but but it's really uh important to understand in order to understand what we're doing here. Um the um the the reason why capital allocation is like a minor part of the story now but it's going to be oh my god very decisive is that every year you have more capital to allocate. So we've had a capital-starved business for eight years. Now we finally have the ability to make investments. We're free cash flowing. We're generating profit. But we're still pretty capital-starved. So we really want to be conservative, grow the balance sheet. There's a lot of competition for dollars internally. Still very capital-starved. Next year, less so. The year after that, less so. And so these decisions about where where money goes become really determining of the long-term success of how how fast you compound. A decision to buy a company versus start a new, meaningfully invest in a new business unit versus like make huge investments in scaling um, uh, a a certain function versus paying down debt. These These are very decisive decisions. That's capital allocation. That's Thorndike. Helmer, seven powers. Um, defensibility, what are the seven powers? These, every business um, that is a truly great business doesn't just have advantages, doesn't just have benefits uh, to its product or service. What makes the product or service a great product or service is that there are some barriers to entry. Because the benefits are so attractive, any business that's creating huge benefits is going to attract competition. So the barriers end up being much more decisive than the benefits. There are seven forms of power that create benefit and barrier. Scale economies, network effects, switching costs, counter-positioning, cornered resources, process power, and branding. We are in a very unique business where in the long term, we can build all seven, but what really matters is which one or which combination we're gonna phase into first. There's almost always a sequence and the sequencing matters. And um, and we're currently in a messy middle where it's not actually clear which power it is. Um, and um, the most unusual of all of these is process power. And that might actually be the one for us. Um, uh, it may be network effects, maybe maybe um, corner resources uh, or counter positioning. It's not clear with our business. Um, but just the mindset of, of underwriting our own company constantly and thinking about how we would attack our own company. We do exercises like the exercise we did in Barcelona at our offsite a couple of weeks ago. Of red team versus blue team, red teaming our own company and thinking about whether the what how a competitor could erode our position and thus erode our profit making potential. So that's defensibility. And then we so we think about that with every business. And then the third thing, segmentation is also very key. So as a business scales, um uh it usually ends up evolving its customer type. So in the beginning of Invisible, we were selling um, uh, super small deals. And um, and then eventually we got our first 100K a year deal. We're like, wow, this is a huge deal. Um, and then we did our first million dollar a d- year deal. And then we had to change the way we sold and change our you know uh, our positioning our pricing everything had to change to accommodate a million dollar a year uh, sales process and then we started doing 10 million dollar plus deals and then we evolved again this is called attacking up market it's a it's a virtuous it's a sign it's a sign of something working but it creates a vulnerability over time for a new entrant to attack from below. If you're Microsoft in the early 90s and you're selling Microsoft Office and Windows, you have an opportunity to sell to everyone on the planet. Every individual, every man, woman, and child, every family, every church, every small business, every medium-sized business, every enterprise, every local government, every state government, every federal government, every military, everyone. (laughs) The only way to do that is to hire general managers with business units and their own P&Ls and their own incentives and empower them to go attack these different markets. Why? Because selling to healthcare is very specific. Healthcare clients want certain things. They ask you about HIPAA compliance. Selling to real estate is very different. Um, selling to energy is very different. So when you have a team that's focused on that opportunity, they're able to move much more successfully and faster. So if you take these three concepts, capital allocation, business model defensibility, and segmentation, these are the three concepts that informed the design of Infinity, our holding company. And this is why we're creating business units and how we're choosing to allocate capital and how we're trying to build network effects across business units. A good example to think about network effects across business units is my iPhone's great, but it's so much better because it connects with my MacBook, my AirPod Pro, my AirPod Max, my Apple display, this Apple mouse. They built a great business because it all connects. And that's not even to mention the software, right? Um, So very similarly, all of these businesses that we're building are hopefully great standalone businesses, but even better when they're network affected. Because you create almost like an old medieval castle, you're creating ring walls, you're creating mutually reinforcing benefits and barriers. You attack this tower, and this other tower over here can hit you from this side. You attack this tower, and this tower can hit you from this side. So you're, you're building a defensive position that's very robust. OK. Whew. That was a whole introduction to invisible infinity um, and the, the higher level plan. Now let's talk about the specific pitches for different business units. So you asked about- Ultimate, uh, ultimate Bank. visionary ascendancy, and ultimate, yeah. Okay, let's start with visionary. Visionary ventures, visionary.vc is the domain. We are looking for a CEO for visionary. Visionary exists legally we've set up the fund um which was you know um like a not a not cheap and took a while and it's ready to go. We're wow. just looking for the CEO to run it and we're we are committed to invest at least a million as an LP. we would like to invest more actually um and we are going to be fundraising and trying to raise at least 25 but up to hundred million dollars for fund one. Every time I talk to LPs about it, I get incredible responses. Um, I've pitched two of our our own investors, LP. Uh, they had asked me to speak at their annual LP meetings. And in both situations, I asked LPs what they thought and amazing response. So it's an opportunity if anyone's listening to like, Introduce me to the ideal next CEO of Visionary Ventures. Um, what is the idea? There's tons of venture funds out there. The world does not need another venture fund, in my opinion, unless that venture fund has a good answer to the very questions that VCs ask entrepreneurs all the time. The first question is: what makes you defensible? It's the Helmer question, right? And the irony about VC is the only thing that makes VC Defensible is brand and network effects over time, which are really like, it's a really old-fashioned form of defensibility, right? Like Sequoia has defensibility they built over decades, right? And the network effects are there. But as a percentage of the industry, they're tiny. Um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. But if you take, say, the top three funds, you uh, I don't know what percentage of the overall industry it is, but I don't think it's that large. Be a good research note to follow afterwards to actually figure that out. We'll do that. Um, Kleiner Perkins is an example of this the, the downside of it, which is that this is the fund that backed Google. And like used to be one of the top three funds, and now it's like number 40 on the list or something. Kind of shocking. It's very much a hits-driven business, and you're only as good as your latest hit. So so why do, we, why do we need another venture fund? Well, if you read the Sovereignty Game speech, uh, you'll get a hint for what we're doing with Visionary, which is this. We want to find entrepreneurs who are seeking an alternative path to venture, who don't want IPO, who don't want to sell, who want to build long-term, profitable, scalable, defensible businesses, that they own, that they control. And yet they need capital. They're capital efficient, but not necessarily bootstrappable. Invi- Invisible costs $7 million of, you know, I don't know, we got to profitability with still a million in the bank. So 6 six point something million of capital before we got to profitability. And it's actually still a company where if I had primary capital offered that was uncontrolling on the right terms, um, I would probably take a little bit, right? Even now, even though we're, we're, we're profitable just to pad the balance sheet and to, to, yeah, pad the balance sheet. So, so there's a big difference between a company that is structurally loss-making, like a venture business where you raise a series A, you lose money, you raise a series B, you lose money. And you're always like trying to lose more and more money to grow faster and faster um, on a very compressed timeline to a company that, is trying to be very capital efficient and play a very different game but still needs capital that market doesn't is not well served if it exists at all i certainly was not able to find it so and i think that we're uniquely well positioned to tell that story the question is how do we as investors and rlps make money Warren Buffett during his um, glory decades um, had an IRR, an internal rate of return of 27, 28%.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The S&P 500 over any 20-year period averages between 8 to 12%. So, um, and I don't know what the Fed has got interest rates up to, but it's um, let's see, what is what's I'm, I'm so, gonna about
0: to pay nine percent for a loan, so I think it was like five percent.
1: Uh, yeah. So for great. Uh, five. Wow, five percent. Yep. Um. So, uh. <laughs> so there's a really great uh website called mathisfund.com that has like a compound interest calculator and compounding is very non-intuitive. So it may not be very obvious how big of a difference there is between 5%, which is the Fed rate, um, uh, 12%, which is what the S&P 500 does over time, and 27 or 28%. But it's the difference between Warren Buffett and everybody else, basically. <laughs> it's a huge difference. Um and the divergence is, is it's exponential. It's the divergence is, is enormous. Um, and uh and yet um the cost of capital of venture is far higher because there's a there's a failure rate. Um so when a VC invests in a company, they there's no pre-negotiated exit. They usually are taking control in addition to ownership. Um and Uh, They're seeking very high IRRs on their winners, sometimes IRRs of like, you know, 100% plus, um, uh, in order to make up for all the losers. Um, If you end up taking that type of capital, when you're actually not that risky as a business, especially after you're profitable or when you're approaching profitability or where you have a good understanding of your business model, you're setting yourself up for a real problem. Uh, if you haven't sold too much control, but you have some sort of weird stalemate dynamic, you have this weird question of negotiating the exit. How do you negotiate the right exit? Venture investors, angel investors are more reasonable, more founder friendly. Venture investors, my goodness, hmm. they are incredibly, they're infinitely greedy. Structurally, it's their mandate. I'm not, I'm not saying they're bad people. Yeah. <laughs> they could be good people. Not all of them are good people, but there are a lot of good people, but that's just <laughs> their thing. They're going to negotiate for, you know, you offer them 10X, they're going to want 100X. You offer them 100X, they're going to want 1000X. That's how they think. So, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? Um, you need capital to run your business. That um, if you're if you're profitable, um, you pro- you're in a weird catch twenty two where no matter how profitable you are, the price of your equity is going up based on how profitable you are. Mm. So you're never going to be able to buy your equity with profits alone. The only way to buy back. Your investors. Does that make sense? Is yes. that an aha moment? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, great. Like, you want you want a ten million dollar exit. Great. Let me generate ten million of profit. Oh, I generate ten million of profit. Now you want a hundred million dollar exit. This is the nature of 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 uh, equity. So you would have to use some other form of capital. Now debt mm. is available, but usually only at a certain size. And you have to be very careful um, in making sure that you don't take debt that's going to destroy you. Destroy you. Um, what Visionary Ventures is going to offer is a series of new financial instruments we've invented. Mm-hmm. Flex notes, flex warrants, flex shares. These are kind of like Y Combinator's safe instrument. They created an industry standard. We're attempting to create industry standards that will offer entrepreneurs um, products that are not toxic, not gonna foreclose in your business and take over your business. And you know, you're not gonna lose control. You're not gonna have your equity wiped out. They are buybackable. There's You can buy us back at some IRR, say 25% baseline plus a, a risk premium if we feel like it's necessary. Um, that's one example of uh, an instrument. We could also peg it to other other ways of setting a price for you to for you to buy back. But the point is, you as the entrepreneur will have a call option on mm-hmm. us as the investor that's pre-negotiated. The there will not be any cash interest, so there's no burden on your balance sheet. Um, and you will be able to use our capital to buy out other people's capital, uh, or you can give us a rofer on them. In other words, we can offer, we can give you some capital that you can use for primary and then we can go around and do a bunch of secondary and convert all everyone else's shares from say series A preferred shares to flex shares that you can then buy back later, giving you a path of sovereignty. This is a product that every entrepreneur I've talked to can't wait to have. The real question is adverse selection or pro selection. Are you going to get the very best companies or are you going to get the worst companies? I think this is a situation where you get the very best companies. You get your cream of the crop because nobody else is offering this. No VC is going to offer this product because it's not controlling and there's capped upside. (laughs) Um, Also, no debt fund is going to offer this product because there's no cash interest rate and no covenants really that are material. So it's a very counter, counter position on both sides. It's a new product. Um, and why does this make sense for Infinity and Invisible? What's the synergy with our main business? Well, for every one company invest we invest in, we're going to have 1,000, 2,000 companies pitch us. right? And so those are all companies that are going to get exposed to what we're doing. Um, and for the companies we do invest in, we're uniquely well-positioned to help make them succeed because of our networks. We have an investor syndicate. Uh, that has several hundred investors in it already. We share a ton of deal flow, even though we don't have a fund set up already. So our ability to sort of, we already have the ability to punch above our weight um, on network and on value add because of the existing platform. And in a worst case scenario, this is, if I was to think about non-dilutive marketing capital for the main business, if we raise a $100 million fund for Visionary Ventures, um, that fund, those LPs are doing it because they think they're going to make money on Visionary Ventures. And that is the goal of Visionary Ventures, to make money and make that 25 plus to plus percent IRR that's Warren Buffett-like over time. But it's non-dilutive, mm. too invisible. But it's effectively a marketing budget because for every one company Visionary invests in, there's a thousand or 2000 companies they're hearing about visionary and invisible and infinity so it's a 100 million dollar non-dilutive marketing budget and from the allocation committee's perspective it's diversifying mm-hmm. because you're adding another thing to the Thorndike menu you can put a dollar into an existing business unit. You can put a dollar into a new unit. You can put a dollar towards paying down debt. You can put a dollar towards balance sheet. You can put a dollar towards buying a company. Now you can put a dollar towards investing in a company, mm. in a private company in a minority investment to achieve a good return. So you're creating additional optionality. Uh,
0: I've got a question yeah. on that. Um, what is the time frame for the
1: liquidity? Um, good question. Um, There's because it's compounding. There's no there's no put option. I think we're going to negotiate. Part of the risk assessment on our part is going to be to look at these companies and decide, um, you know, if we feel like there's going to be liquidity. Um, if it's a really good sovereign company, there will be liquidity over time. Why? Even if you don't IPO, even if you don't sell. If you're a profitable, scalable, defensible business and you're compounding year after year after year, you're building a large enterprise value. And that is attractive to secondary funds um, and that basically want to want to provide you liquidity in order to own some of that. Um, And there are permanent capital vehicles. There are um, there are investors who are attracted to that. They're different than traditional PE and venture funds, um, but they exist. And so, uh, and actually that's on the equity side, on the debt side and on the, both the profit, the profitability uh, of the company drives the borrowing power. And so you not only have the ability to exit, having equity replace equity, you also have the ability to, uh buy out the equity with debt and so so if, if if we invest in a company we're relatively high cost of capital but we're non-controlling and very low risk um like low covenants etc as they de-risk their business they're going to suddenly get access to much cheaper debt they're going to get much more comfortable with taking debt um, and they're going to want to swap us if we're compounding at 25 plus they're going to want to swap us out with something that's compounding at fifteen percent or ten percent or whatever, um, and uh, and and provide liquidity that way. So the liquidity is probably going to come with debt, mm-hmm. or debt, or or some other long term uh, player that's going to work within the sovereignty model. Um, and Stuart, I know that we're you know I saw your note on time, and I know that we're we've done an hour here. It's probably good for listeners. Um, I'm happy to keep going, or we I, could.
0: Or I can, we can cut it up. So I can, we can keep on going and I can cut it up later.
1: Great. Cool. Yep. All right. Let's keep going. Um, let me drink some water. Sure. What do you think so far?
0: Uh, oh, it's great. Uh, not only do I think that this is really interesting for the company, for anybody listening, the key question is, are we publicizing this, uh, to the, to the podcast or is it only going to be internal?
1: I would definitely pub- publicize it.
0: Sweet. Awesome. Um, I don't
1: think I said anything, uh, I'm not supposed to, so
0: yeah. Just the key question of whether we're talking about the business units publicly, and I I recorded a podcast with Mickle where we went into the 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 business units specifically, not not specifically, but over overview. So I wanted to see whether I could publish it, and this sounds like we are now going full steam. So I'm really excited about that, and uh, I think this is this is really high quality stuff. I'm also interested just because I grew up around venture, so it's it's, it's a wild take it on is. on uh, it's a wild take on on venture, which I'm extremely excited about.
1: It's pretty wild.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and I want to find you that CEO, who are you looking for?
1: Um, I'm always looking for a younger version of myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'm looking for you, Stuart. Yeah. Uh, can, can you clone yourself?
0: Yeah. yeah. Soon enough.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm just looking for, for a great entrepreneur who understands they have to be sure. financially, they have to be very financially savvy, uh, ideally have entrepreneurial experience have had felt the pain of entrepreneurs have tried to raise capital are like dissatisfied with the venture model, have a great network, uh, are able to both source deals, choose well, add value. Um, yeah. I want to find an incredible entrepreneur of a great venture fund. I
0: think, uh, I think Gary Tan just uh, uh, joined our AI syndicate on WhatsApp. Um, Seriously. Yeah, I, I'm not totally sure, but I, I sent him a message. He asked a question about AI, and then I sent him the link to our WhatsApp group. Uh, and then I think he joined. Um
1: <laughs> yeah. We're becoming low-key legit. Yeah. <laughs> um all right. Um
0: anything else on visionary ventures? Or should we move on to the next one?
1: Yeah, there is there is more to say on visionary, which is just this. We're going to change the whole industry if we succeed and that is not just a business model transformation it's a cultural transformation the venture industry is a cultural industrial complex mm-hmm. not just an industrial complex it's also not that old venture capital started Roughly contemporaneously, contemporaneously with private equity in the post-war period, it really didn't get to any meaningful maturity until the 70s, in the 80s, and then in the 90s it dramatically increased in each decade, and then the 2000s were the knots were like probably kind of a bad decade for venture, mm-hmm. uh, but Google, Facebook, those IPOs really drove it. The 2010s were uh, like a metatastizing, mm. just huge bull run, mm. um, and cyclically, it's going through a down right now. But yeah, there's still, there's still so many strong fundamentals around uh, private technology um, that most most technology innovation and investment is going to stay private, and therefore, as an asset class, they're going to do well. Funds like ARC, uh ARC's private, you know, ARC's venture fund are interesting to me. I'm an advisor to that fund because they're democratizing access. Uh FDR after 1929 and 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 uh Hoover lost the election and, and FDR took over. Um uh censoring my political commentary beyond that um, uh, tried to protect grandma um, by uh, introducing accredited investor laws yes. so that you couldn't um, deceive unsophisticated investors. Unfortunately, this has now cut off everyone who's not already wealthy from the the highest the best opportunities in in, in the market. So,, um, this actually just increases inequality. And I think that that's
0: un-
1: unfortunate. But the way the way that uh, affects entrepreneurs is that, although the techn- technology industry has is now global, we still use the phrase Silicon Valley. Why? Because, well, I mean,
0: yeah, go for
1: it. Yeah. yeah, because as you know, it's a mafia. Um, and and that's sort of the nature of private trading. It's uh insider trading is legal and encouraged in private companies. Mm. Um you know, talk to my buddy Tony, yeah. <laughs> he might help you, he might invest in you, and that's actually good. Like that's good. Um but it becomes an industrial complex very quickly, and it has so inframed people's minds. It's like a mind virus. Entrepreneurs have forgotten how classical business physics works, where profits are good and losses are bad. Mm. Because they've read so many VC blog posts. Yeah, interesting. By so some of them are amazing, like Paul Graham's blog code post, like you know, bless their soul. Like, you know, all these people who built the industry, uh, they're, they're heroes. I don't want to like overly knock them. Um, uh, so first round capital produces great content. Union square ventures produces great content. And then suddenly you have this content form of every venture fund is producing content. Every VC has a blog. This does a lot of good. It, it sort of creates a ton of venture models but then over time, you create a courses on a rerum where it's almost like when I when I graduated from college, mm. all my smart friends went to Wall Street or, or consulting. They went to finance or consulting. They went to Goldman or McKinsey. Nobody went into tech. I was the only one. And then now it's quite normal to be like, I'm going to YC. I yeah. got into YC. Okay, great. Like Now I'm in an incubator. Now I got to demo day. Great. I raised a seed round. Great. I raised a series A. Great. I raised a series B. And you're sort of Following, you you have a professional managerial class that's been turned into entrepreneurs. Mm. Not a bad thing. It's kind of a good thing. Mm. But they don't even realize it. Yeah. And so they actually are not capable of first principles thinking because they haven't been put, they're capable of it, but they just they've never been forced to. So if you're, put yourself in the, you know, travel back in time to that person when they were a kid, they're like, Trying to get straight A's in school, and they're like earning all the credentials they need to get into Harvard. And then they get into Harvard and they get straight A's at Harvard and then they get into Y Combinator and then they get straight A's and Y Combinator and then they raise their demo day round and then they get straight A's and then they raise their series A round. And then wait a second, at some point, it's not straight A's anymore. At some point, at some point, the market wakes up and has a moment where it's like, none of these businesses are real. <laughs> Well, that, that's the moment we're in right now where you just have these huge, huge like um, Darwinian selection moments where all this, all this garbage gets cleared out of the system. Um, and it, in those it. moments that people suddenly are more aware that this whole time, what they called the world is just a box they've been living in that was created by somebody else. Yeah. Uh, So
0: and it's very interesting and it relates to visionary ventures that right now what we're going through, I've been reading this book called uh, The Price of Time by Chancellor um, and it talks about interest and the rise of interest and he goes through all the periods where there's been low interest rates and everything we're experiencing, including all the VC bubble is the fact that interest rates were close to zero basically and now that's changing and now it's like the, the opposite effect. It's like all the hippies around me now had to go get jobs. Because they, they they because because they can't sell their beads anymore because nobody wants to sell the, buy the beads uh, all the or this crazy crystal stuff uh, so like there's a huge change and that's going on in, with adventure as well which is a perfect time for visionary ventures because what you're talking about is capital efficient and also smart for long term business creation which is the exact environment that of what is going on right now is going to foster
1: basically personally I love this high interest rate environment um it you know cramps down on um well you know i'm trying to avoid too much of a political discourse but um like critiquing central banking in general and keynesianism writ large i'll avoid that um but i'll just say um, that the um the artificially low interest rates for long periods of time really penalized profitable businesses. And if you have the opposite environment where capital is fleeing from risky loss-making equity to the equity and borrowing power, the debt of um, uh, businesses that can afford it there. That means the market is hungry for like, you know, Um, a different type of company. And and all those advantages accrue to uh, strong businesses that used to accrue to crazy, risky, innovative Mm -hmm. stuff that was probably not real. Um, And so you have this like weird, there's been this weird systematic sort of punishing of conservatism, financial conservatism Mm -hmm. um, in the running of a business. Uh, and this weird rewarding of irresponsible cowboys. Which, don't get me wrong, I've got an irresponsible cowboy inside me. But uh, there's just, I care about sovereignty more, right? Um, So going back to the the main thing, if visionary succeeds, every entrepreneur is going to want to build a sovereign company. Think about how much energy goes into getting a rocket into space. Once you're in space, it's it's so much easier to move around. There's a similar kind of breakthrough that you get to, and then you're going to sell IPO and then do it again. Most entrepreneurs don't have the energy, don't have the life force, or have to take a sabbatical for multiple years before they can recharge And if they've had a good exit then they're so much more careful about dilution and control the second time around and that's why sovereign companies usually get built by people who already learned the hard way to value it and then when they do is they build a platform and they keep adding on to it so um i think that uh if the sovereignty model is able to break through you ironically get more visionary ventures, which is why we called the fund visionary ventures. Why? Because if you're in the venture model, you get punished for deviating from whatever a normal business looks like. Mm-hmm. And so this is very, very strange. If you listen to, I don't know, Steve Jobs speeches or like what you you know, what you think. The technology industry is all about. It's about the misfits, the round, you know, the square pegs and the round holes, the you know, the really creative people who think different. <laughs> and then it's like, wait a second, you've got a B2B SaaS company. Uh, and uh you're if you don't have a B2B SaaS company, you're not selling an AI and you know, so, so, something that involves AI, um, we're not investing in with you. And then you go through the hype cycles. Oh, you're not a crypto company, we're not interested. Or, oh, you're not a nft we're not interested oh you're not a 3d printing company we're not interested. like it's just totally um, uh, cookie cutter type companies that get get mass produced the really contrarian companies if they are contrarian are actually not obvious bets for a long time hmm. and so there's this sense with which these party rounds this cabal, cabal like you know, venture mafia behavior is very much a hype driven frenzy around consensus. And so how do you create true contrarian bets that are actually gonna change the world? How do you get actually big ideas that are actually gonna change society? How do you get actually industry changing, so- society changing, types of breakthroughs, you have companies that are sovereign, that have real business models, are focused on scalability, profitability, defensibility. And over time, they're able to take those types of real risks and real bets because they're not sort of jammed into a model that needs to generate liquidity by a certain time frame and needs to keep going from the series A to the series B and needs to keep showing certain metrics and Goes to board meeting after board meeting where VCs are asking for the same proof points. Duh. <laughs> Sorry. It's so obvious to me, but it's like taken so many years for me to deconstruct. It's like it's like those early scenes where Neo's in the matrix and he's trying to get out, and he's like, he doesn't even know, he just sort of suspects that it's none of its real. Um, and that's what it was like for me. I I was almost to the point where I was gaslit. Like when you when everybody's in when everybody's a fish in water and you start to talk about no there's you know this other world outside of the water <laughs> where people walk on land you know <laughs> it's yeah like the other fishes look at you and they're like what's going what do what do you what's <laughs> have you lost it yeah yeah so um so i think visionary has the the chance to to build an alternative competing cultural industrial complex A different way of thinking, a different way of being, a different attitude of entrepreneurship in general. Um, And that's what's truly exciting about it to me. Not just the prospect of like great financial returns, but how this will radically shift the balance of power in the entrepreneur's favor. And by the way, if I think there's a single Occam's razor in this whole thing, that fund will win, which whose business model is the most entrepreneur-friendly. And there are just structural misalignments between entrepreneurs and investors that nobody talks about. And I've developed an intense skepticism because when you listen to VCs and you go to their websites, it's all this entrepreneurial-friendly talk. But it's almost like RealPolitik. Anyone who really knows the game cuts through all that bullshit and says, so "Okay, let's let's talk about actually. Let's talk about terms. Let's talk about exit. Let's talk about control." And you realize, "Oh my gosh, like we're so misaligned." You know,
0: how did you first get the idea to buy back the shares
1: from investors? Um, I think I wanted sovereignty. Actually, before I even, I I had so. This is where being a history major is an advantage um i've been reading about the history of the world um, political history economic history my whole life basically since i was a kid 12 i started reading the classics at the age of 12. so sovereignty was a concept i understood um and so i knew something was weird steve jobs can you imagine if he, he had to pitch his vcs i'm like yeah i know that you invested in a computer company but I really want to like build this portable music player and being told no. Or can you imagine Bezos going to his board and saying, I know that we're a books company, but I really want to do this e-commerce marketplace. Or I know that we're in e-commerce marketplace, but I really want to do actual warehouses. Or, you know, I really want to do this web infrastructure business and being told no at each of these moments. Bezos is an interesting example because he actually turned the public markets into his VCs. Very few because he had been in finance, mm-hmm. he had a superpower there, mm-hmm. and he was able to do modern venture capital before modern venture capital in a way that was better than modern venture capital because he was able to treat the public markets like a VC and run a like run a loss making business for a long period of time. Interesting. Um Steve Jobs had a had his own bout of sovereignty. Think about it, like he got kicked out and then he was just so exceptional <laughs> and they ran it to the ground and they had to bring him back what if that hadn't happened yeah how different would history have been if they hadn't brought him back it's actually crazy to think about it's actually crazy that he stayed in the game and put all of his own personal capital he put personal capital into next he was yeah. sovereign with next
0: yeah
1: pixar no yeah. he was sovereign at that company he had, personally financed pixar to a seven billion dollar exit all of his wealth at, when he died was from pixar yeah. Steve jobs whole life is a sovereignty story like understood from a business model point of view it's like sovereignty again. and then i was like living in san francisco and then living in new york and sort of swimming in it and being like this is just wrong the other thing is that i'm religious i'm not just uh i actually don't belong to any one religion i study and read all religions but like there is this sort of jeremiah ad. there's this like attitude of the prophet which is contrarian mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and so you're like a polemicist you are like constantly running a cultural critique and and so in the same way that i've gotten like a thousand no's so i've deeply internalized my own devil's advocate i know what all my critics think i can almost finish their sentences i am also critiquing society and i like have a very strong critic of the water i'm swimming in and that includes business and so i think that gave me a sense for it but then what so that was the flammable material the other thing was like reading lee kuan yew like re, you know his sovereignty story the sovereignty story of singapore um and the person who told me to read that uh was my friend ed um edward lando who's a great sort of sovereign entrepreneur and I sort of watched how he built it, his sovereignty. And then uh, Jessica Ma uh, and Charlie Songhurst turned me on to Outsiders by Thorndike, And that was the moment where I just, my mind exploded. And I was like, I was able to connect enough of the dots and realize that something was possible that Thorndike himself doesn't articulate in the book or state as a possibility. But um, I sort of, Songhurst was my was my real intellectual thought partner and has been for five years. And, and he told me it was possible. And just actually hearing someone with enough credibility to tell you that your idea is possible is transformative. I'm going to read a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that it. I reread this morning, and I actually included in my election memo to partners as we do this election. Um, And, um, the quote is, I call it, believe your own thought. And it's in his book, self-reliance. Oh, believe your own thought to believe that which is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. Genius. Speak your latent conviction, and it shall be the universal sense. For the inmost, in due time, becomes the utmost, and our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes flashes across his mind from within, more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses his without notice his thought because it is his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression with good-humored inflexibility. Then most, when the whole cry of voices is on the other side, else, Tomorrow, a stranger will say with masterly good sense, precisely what we have thought and felt all the time. And we shall be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another. Hmm. Oh, believe your own thought. To believe what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. I'm sure the thoughts I've had have been a glimmer in the minds of many, many entrepreneurs. And like I say, sovereignty is the oldest game. It's older than the venture game. So there's no, no nothing necessarily innovative in all of this. But what Songers and others were able to do for me is to help me believe my own thought and say, no, actually, you're seeing something real. There's a possibility that you can defy the odds and do something nobody's done recently in this industry <laughs> hmm. go oh, try it and i guess i had the courage to to turn off my car- targeting computer use the force and like try to like blow up the death star with my little x-wing and you know it worked or it seems to be working who knows and um and so i guess the question is like why not go on another death star run if like i was able to like if, if, if invisible was able to do it and get sovereignty I think of it mythically. I think of Visionary Ventures as a jailbreak. Mm -hmm. I got out of jail using the skeleton key. Instead of just leaving the jail, I want to unlock all the other prison cells and let out all the other entrepreneurs.
0: Is there, uh, you've been talking a lot about risk and risk analysis. Uh, Is there any thinking of doing risk analysis as a service to start thinking about, how to consult with people to help them understand good risks versus not so good risks.
1: Um well that sort of leads into ascendancy. Mm. Um let's uh so before we talk about any other businesses, I feel, I feel like that's all I have to say about visionary. Um uh for now unless do so you have any questions? No. Good. Do you feel like we covered it? Yeah. Great. Um, Shall we move on to ascendancy? Let's do it. Can you keep going? I can go sure. all the way until 6.30 my time, which is like an hour from now. Sure. Let's do it. Great. Um, and by the way, I think it's a great use of my time because... And we should keep doing this until we're just done with all of them um if you edit them well um and like or even just time post it so people can skip and be like here's where he talks about infinity here's where he talks about visionary etc um i think it's going to be pretty evergreen pretty evergreen content yeah all right Ascendancy. If McKinsey is the best strategy consulting firm in the world, how come it's not also the biggest company in the world? If McKinsey is strategy as a service and they're so good at strategy, isn't strategy the ultimate superpower? What is more of a superpower than strategy? If you're so good at strategy, you could turn a pizza shop into a bigger company than Apple. That's the nature of strategy. And it's also the nature of companies. There are plenty of stories of companies that divest out of a business and move into a new business and divest from that, and move into a new business and they They transform. Now, I don't want to knock McKinsey. McKinsey is one of the greatest companies in the world. They're um, historically they pioneered the professional managerial class over the last hundred years, um, particularly in the post-war era. Um, The uh, emergence of an expertocracy, a technocracy, um, an elite bureaucracy, um, where you know every year a, a pretty reasonable percentage, of double digit percentage of the best graduates from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Cornell, you know Stanford, they all go to McKinsey and Bain and BCG, MBB, McKinsey, Bain, BCG. These are the three big strategy consulting firms. Now, I'm not going to do a full business breakdown. There's an amazing podcast uh, called Business Breakdowns that will break down McKinsey for you and, and help you understand the business. But they're a 20th century services firm that has failed to dramatically innovate on their business model. They're not a technology company and the different practice areas are out there hunting for business. They uh, are highly scoped, short-term, and incredibly expensive cash businesses. Because of the nature of that business model, they've built up a kind of standing reserve of available talent and resources. But the shocking thing is that these businesses are always sort of less than a year away from going out of business because <laughs> the revenue is like most of the revenue is not recurring. Now, over time, they've built a brand and a network uh, and sales relationships like relationships with major decision makers. And they have tons of alumni and tons of companies. And there is a structural need in the market for their type of work. Um among Fortune 100 companies, governments, and other entities that can afford such expensive labor. So let's go back to those three things, short-term, highly scoped, extremely cash expensive. Ascendancy is the opposite, long-term, Holistic in scope and equity forward and flexible in compensation. We're trying to build a true retainer relationship with clients. And we are open even to equity only compensation. If it's a company that we really believe in and we can underwrite over a long period of time, like many years, any equity that we take, you would have a call option. Going back to the visionary ventures model, we really believe in value add per share. And if we as a shareholder aren't adding enough value, then you should have the right to buy us at some reasonable price, market price, or pre-negotiated price framework. But the point is, there's no better form of alignment long-term than equity. So any cash deal is a form of being penny wise, pound foolish. So um, even if McKinsey charges a lot of money, say $10 million for a piece of work, if they truly are creating strategic value, then they're creating nonlinear value. If it's nonlinear value, it will be recognized over the long term. And therefore, they're always ironically undercharging, even though they're so expensive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So let's go through three again. Long term instead of short term. This totally changes the um, the way you engage. Holistic instead of uh, scoped. When you have to scope everything, because you have to negotiate a price, you commit the classic error in agile development, your waterfall, not agile. You have to you make the mistake or the fallacy of thinking that you can somehow understand enough about the problem before you've actually entered the problem to scope it, um, or you just default to like some obscene hourly rate or whatever. There's just this real misalignment around scoping and pricing that creates a ton of friction. But if you're truly holistic, you're actually much more aligned with the nature of strategy itself. The nature of strategy is everything is connected, everything is long-term, and everything is really messy and value creation occurs over very long periods of time. And so if you're really strategic and non-linear and then you should be exposed to the risk and the upside. Now, Elite talent is expensive. That's why, and capital is expensive. So that's why there's very few companies in a place where they're they're capable of even offering something like this. But with invisible and ascendancy, it's like peanut butter and jelly. These two things go really well together. Why? The business models are, incredibly complementary and opposite. Invisible is ops as a service. Ascendancy is strategy as a service. You combine ops and strategy together, you get execution as a service. Um, Invisible's business model is like a toll booth. Every single time a process runs, we clip a coupon, clip a coupon, clip a coupon. This is incredibly honest as a business model because... It aligns everybody's incentives around units of result and around deflation. Better, faster, cheaper, better, faster, cheaper. More capabilities, more capabilities, better, faster, cheaper. And that is a that is naturally lends itself towards a cash cow, a cash machine. Like Invisible is a ca- generating free cash flow and profitable and scaling. And it generates cash. Because it's Operations is always short-term in nature. Strategy is always long-term in nature. Mm-hmm. So the natural, the natural business model for a truly aligned strategy firm, a, tr- a strategy firm that's truly aligned with its clients, would take equity in its clients. So it's the opposite business model. And yet these two things are highly synergistic. So we're going to hire a bunch of former consultants, former finance people, former tech people, elite tech people. And we're going to go after a different type of client than McKinsey, Bain and BCG go after. We're going to go after scale-ups. Imagine like Amazon or Microsoft or Apple in the (laughs) nineties. Yeah. Imagine if you lock them up, and you were their consultancy of record, and you were supporting them throughout the business. By the time McKinsey, Bain, and BCG eventually target them because they're the biggest companies in the world, you've already boxed them out. You're already providing all their need, you know, providing for all their needs. Um, so there's there's the opportunity to disrupt from below. This is using the innovators dilemma to disrupt in a classic way, this industry by going after a different segment that is currently ignored by strategy consulting, changing the engagement model. So it's long-term, a long-term sort of retainer type lockup, changing the pricing model so everyone could afford it. It's It's free McKinsey, cash-free, just cost equity, we're going to be the best shareholders ever and add a higher value add than any other shareholders. And if we're not, you can buy us out. Um, and it's holistic. So you enter in, you lock up those deals. But then your, your ascendancy consultants go in. And as they go into the business, they end up discovering tons of operational problems, challenges, needs, and opportunities. And then they bring in Invisible to run those processes. They will scope the processes for free. Do all the process design and all the business model design and all the business work for free because they're getting equity for that. But once the process is running and the trains start running, we're clipping a coupon, clipping a coupon, clipping a coupon, generating cash on the invisible side. And that is the peanut butter and jelly, ops plus strategy, execution as a service combination of ascendancy and invisible. Now let's just imagine you're a board member in infinity hearing this pitch. And let's just assume that I'm able to find a CEO for Ascendancy, which I haven't yet found the right person. Spoken to different candidates, haven't yet picked the, picked a candidate. But let's just suppose we were able to find an incredible CEO for Ascendancy. And you as a board member, your, be, your next best alternative use of a dollar is to invest in a salesperson for Invisible. So do you buy another salesperson or do you buy the CEO of Ascendancy? Do you buy a second salesperson or do you buy a second Ascendancy consultant? Well, my argument pitching against the sales team would be Ascendancy is the best way of selling invisible. Why? Because It's a less transactional way of approaching operations that naturally builds trust. And it's actually been the way we were able to bootstrap the business without a sales team. Invisible got to a 10 mil run rate with me and one other salesperson, Jay Kumar. And then we got to a... 25 mil run rate with like four or five salespeople. (laughs) Um, Mostly because of business development, big whales that came to us through using our network. Why? Because created a ton of value through free consulting in our network basically. Mm -hmm. And that created a lot of goodwill around the company. And we've always been blessed by having a ton of advisors because we ourselves have been advising a lot of companies. Um, and so we've always sort of provided our clients a reasonable amount of free advice because it just takes a certain amount of free advice to set up processes and whatever. And s- last year was the first year that some of our clients started to pull it pull much more aggressively for strategy help. Mm-hmm. And so it suddenly we started to realize we got another business on our hands. Yeah, We should, we should do that. We should go after that. Um, the other secret advantage here is um the networks we've built around our company. So this is a separate business unit, separate pitch. Um, but uh, we've got these social mafias all around the world, New York City mafia, London Mafia, San Francisco mafia. Lisbon Mafia, Miami Mafia, et cetera. We have all these business syndicates, investor syndicate, entrepreneur syndicate, AI syndicate, design syndicate, PR syndicate, et cetera. And, um, and other others as well. We've got learning communities, et cetera. But I think maybe our most valuable single group is our advisor network. We've got about 50 advisors. We're growing to about hundred advisors by the end of the year. It's like our very own expert network, like GLG or Tegas. We give them some amount of equity in our company. We have a call option to buy them if they're not adding value uh, uh, on a value-add per share basis. Um, But they're kind of a standing reserve of people you can't afford to hire. World-class people that have highly differentiated experience in every subject matter in every industry so the ability for ascendancy consultants to not just tap into their own experience and their own network but to bring our entire company network to bear on a client to bring in a senior partner from invisible or to bring in an advisor from our network or to bring or to go reach out to our investor syndicate or whatever to bring the answer to bear that is a true uh superpower uh, and a different way of approaching the problem so i kind of mythically think about McKinsey, bain and bcg as like the redcoats in the american revolution and if you've ever seen the movie patriot with mel gibson um it's like all these American colonists who fought in the French-American War learned a bunch of asymmetric guerrilla warfare tactics from the Indians. And they just like, you know, totally slaughtered. And anytime the Americans tried to fight like the British, they got slaughtered. And so, you know, if we try to beat McKinsey, Bannon, and BCG at their own game and go after the same clients in the top Fortune 100, that's a real problem. But if we are totally asymmetric, non-linear, and indirect, and go after a totally different client base, the totally different engagement model and business model, and bring to bear all the other advantages we have, we have the opportunity to build the strategy firm of the 21st century. So going back to the original question, if McKinsey is so good at strategy, why isn't it the most valuable company in the world? The goal for Ascendancy is not only to be Bigger and more valuable than Bain, McKinsey, and BCG, but to create true enterprise value and be bigger than Apple, I think Ascendancy in and of itself could be a trillion-dollar-plus company. Um. Why? Because strategy is so valuable. So.
0: Do it. So there are going to be these consultants that work hand in hand with Invisible but they get equity. And so there are these small companies that are gonna turn into high growth companies. Um, And then over time, they'll be able to afford more of invisible services. But what's the balance there in the beginning as these companies are growing and using invisible services, could they actually use equity or would they have to be like funded by venture capitalists in order to, to use invisible services and only get expertise from ascendancy?
1: Great question you actually just today, you did a bunch of homework into intercompany billing and uh, different models. So this is where it comes in to, to bear. Um, as Ascendancy drives uh, revenue for Invisible, it will have an intercompany exchange, billing exchange with, with Invisible, where Invisible is basically paying Ascendancy instead of its own sales team. In other words, it's a it's a channel partner for invisible. And so we'll get um, uh, a reasonable percentage of the the revenue um, as part of the cost of revenue, cost of sale. Um, And that's true not just up front for the initial new sale, but also for expansion over time Mm -hmm. because ascendancy will drive expansion for invisible. That's uh, the first source of uh, dollars into the business is through uh, indirect revenue, not from the client, but from invisible. And the client would know this in advance. There'd be no conflict of interest. we be very transparent about, Hey, we're going to pitch our own services where we feel like that's the best way to help. You're not obliged to use them, but this is our, this is the peanut butter and jelly here. The, um, the other source is actually equity. Right. It's a fund. It is, a. Uh, So, there's two ways of funding it either off a balance sheet. In other words, you end up building an equity portfolio. You underwrite that equity portfolio. It has some value. So, let's say you've got a bunch of value in a company that you think is the next Apple, a company you think is the next Amazon, a company you think is the next Google, a company you think is the next Microsoft. Who knows? They could all go bankrupt, right? But this is like you're building an equity portfolio. And once you get to 20 plus clients, You have portfolio diversification working for you. And you can underwrite that portfolio and assign some enterprise value and then invest in that as a fund. But then it probably makes sense to share that risk with LPs. So Ascendancy could easily have a fund uh, and use that fund to pay its consultants well. Um, and then those consultants would have equity in the business unit or, or shares in the fund, in the fund, uh, depending on how the fund is set up. In other words, they get exposure to the long-term upside, but they also ultimately need to get cash and bonuses and benefits and, and normal forms of compensation. They will get those and those will be paid for either by the revenue being brought in indirectly from invisible or through, uh, capital being raised. Uh, in order to build the equity portfolio. Then over a long period of time, say a 10-year period, that equity portfolio starts to yield. And so you have incredibly lumpy cash flows, but where you get these huge exits that then um, you, know, you then result in cash. The other thing is I don't want to be dogmatic about equity, um, which is that There are some clients that value equity in the extreme and would just prefer to pay cash. And if we are motivated to do the work and if it's a good deal, then why not? Um, McKinsey, Bain, and BCG haven't locked up the whole market. Uh, There are tons of companies that have cash and are willing to spend it for the right type of service. And I think the main thing is to just be commercial, commercially oriented, pragmatic. And not dogmatic about it. The counter positioning here is just that we're willing to do a type of deal that the others are not, which is more aligned. In other words, the interest is aligning with clients. That's the real principle. The principle is not take equity, not cash. That's not the principle. The principle is align maximally with clients. And the critique of the industry is that it's not. So if you do have a client that wants to pay you in a more traditional means, align with the client. Hmm.
0: Um, It seems like this is somewhat related to Y Combinator. Where does Y Combinator fit in as competition or as maybe even a partner?
1: YC is not a consulting firm. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be an amazing... uh, YC companies are probably too young, too small to underwrite or to to take risk in for a company like a series a, a. so you'd but be Tennessee is actually a. not even series a it's more like series yeah. b um yeah. series c even you know but but uh like say a company at a you know 10 mil plus run rate 20 mil plus run rate at a minimum um uh once you get into the you know or, you know you uh 50 mil run rate it starts to be better but like if Ascendancy pitched Invisible, I would be like, "Yes," yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's equity only and it's not—it's super um, aligned. Um, so the
0: businesses need to be somewhat de-risked by that, and then and then we get them at the ideal inflection point uh, where there's less risk and more upside. You got it. Very cool. So let me look through my notes here. Go all the way back up. Um,
1: One last thing to say about Ascendancy is that you see that this is sort of part of a systematic takedown of the services industry. It's like Accenture has a consulting, a strategy consulting arm. So if you really want to be the best BPO in the world, you sort of have to develop this capability anyways. Um, if you really want to go after the entire professional services market opportunity, which is six trillion currently and you not only want to go after that red ocean, you want to go after that blue ocean work that's currently trapped inside the enterprise, you don't want to limit yourself to just the half a trillion in BPO, you want to go after you want to go after things holistically and 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 the um the ability to, provide value and solve a problem for a client with jujitsu and also with kaipuera and also with muay thai and also with krav maga and also like the point is operations is a martial art strategy is a martial art knowledge management is a martial art research is a martial art the more of these, hiring is a martial art, the more forms of uh, services excellence you can bring to bear using this these combinations of technology, networks, aligned business models, the more of a whole is greater than the sum of the parts that you get. You're able to just solve a client, you're actually able to offer the end-to-end solution the client wants and solve problems because you're not just dealing with like a blunt instrument, you know you have many different ways of of, of getting the thing done. Great. So there was a
0: question earlier I had about uh, risk analysis as a service. We could go into that, or we could go into unlimited bank.
1: Unlimited financial services is finance. Ultimate bank is the bank. Um, yeah. uh, okay, so. Let's do Ultimate Bank. Um, agents. We've got 2,000 of them. By the end of this year, we're going to have four to 6,000 of them. By the end of next year, we're going to have 10,000 plus, probably. And then just double that number every year, right? And start to have large, large numbers of people all around the world. Accenture has something like a million people all around the world. Give you a sense of how big these organizations can get. We currently pay all of these. 2,000 people in 80 countries around the world every two weeks in their local currency using Wise, which used to be called TransferWise. And that's just one vendor of many uh, that we use, but like that's probably the main one. We have built an agent pay software that's part of our digital assembly line, because when you're paying that many people, you need to make sure they actually did the work. You've QA'd the work um, and it's approved by the manager. The payment gets sent out and we want to automate that as much as possible. So we're working on that automated payments to agents. Um, And uh, it's just the agent pay software and finding the right vendors has been a non-trivial problem that we've continued to innovate on over the whole life of the company mm. since uh our we hired our first agent in 2016. Crypto, in theory, should have created a breakthrough here already. I don't know why it hasn't. I do know, however, that from an agent's point of view, if you're living in Istanbul or Buenos Aires or any country with high inflation, which is basically the whole developing world, you're being punished if you save money. Inflation hits the working class hardest because if currency was sound, you could save money and build generational wealth and pass it on to your children. But if currency is not sound, then even the money you do save gets destroyed through bad policy. It becomes very hard to build wealth even through conservative um, financial management, even if you save money and do your best to compound it. Now let's talk about compounding. You and I take this for granted. When Keynes says compounding is the most powerful force in the universe, I think that was Kane's. Um he wrote an essay called The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren. And he calculated that Sir Francis Drake's capture of the Spanish galleons full of gold, uh, if you apply the right compounding um math to it, resulted in the exact size of the British treasury at the time of he, the, the time he wrote the essay. Um and um and so he projected forward to the future that there would be enormous growth in material prosperity, and there, there has been even at a 7% compounding rate, you double your money every 10 years. But the S&P 500 can do eight to 20, sorry, eight to 12% over any 20 year period, but that's equity risk. And that's a 20 year period. Mm-hmm. Most people can lock up their money for 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So even if you can deliver 7% interest to someone in exchange for locking up their money over time, If you can save $5,000 at the beginning of your career, 40 years later, at the end of your career, it's $100,000. $100,000 in Nairobi is like a million dollars in New York. Mm -hmm. It's the beginnings of generational wealth. So the idea with Ultimate Bank is how do we give our agents a deposit account that holds their payments in US dollars instead of a local currency, or even better than USD, mm. be something that is a basket of currencies, anything that is true, like a much better inflation hedge. The goal the goal is to give them something that is the best possible inflation hedge so that if their money is just sitting there, it's not being destroyed. And then second, to give them a series of saving and investment products that are communicated clearly and have education and training around them, Mm. but that help create a saving and compounding story for them so that they can save that $5,000. And 40 years later, they have, a hundred thousand um, dollars. Because once you start to see that magic work, you start to save more and you end up in a virtuous cycle. And part of that virtuous cycle is that you can actually take more risk if you can spread out your time period. So even just going from a, um, non-equity instruments to the S&P 500, if you put your money in, say, a Vanguard account. Vanguard over a 20-year period does 8 to 12%. 8 mm. to 12% is amazing.
0: Mm. It's
1: better than what I said. Um, let's look it up. Compound interest calculator. 12% present value, $5,000, periods, 40. Wow, $465,000, almost half a million dollars. It's a real difference with 7% in which $5,000 turns into only $75,000, right? Uh, 8% 8 turns into $108,000, 9% turns into $157,000, 10% turns into $226,000, 11% turns into $325,000, 12% turns into $465,000. So the more you can baseline against Vanguard instead of on a debt-like instrument uh, or whatever the security is that you're able to find for them, um, that is a huge upgrade. And then the question is, could you build a fund of funds that's baselined on Vanguard but starts to invest in Sequoia as an LP, Bridgewater as an LP, um, uh, et cetera, and start to like BlackRock, Vista Equity, et cetera, start to put money in the best fund managers in the world and offer them the kind of diversification and investment management that Private wealth receives in in a developed country. Hmm. That would be a truly transformative thing for this class um, of the working class in developing countries. So, um, hmm. so the vision for Ultimate Bank, as it relates to our agents, is not necessarily to build a vertically integrated bank from day one. Mm -hmm. So Ultimate Bank is a bank that's not a bank. Mm -hmm. The same way Visionary Ventures is a venture fund that's not a venture fund. And Ascendancy is a consulting firm that's not a consulting firm. (laughs) Um, This is a bank that's not a bank. There's an increasing amount of banking as a service companies out there Mm -hmm. who are willing to provide regulated and compliant infrastructure for you to build on top the layer on top is the brand the software the ui the ux um the training and education the communities the network Mm -hmm. um and ultimately like the client experience and the value prop the layer below is regulation compliance actually holding FDIC secured accounts or whatever, whatever the um whatever the actual accounts are. Um in the same way that we don't need to create the financial instruments, we can find um uh financial products out there that have the right return profile um mm. over the right lockup period. Mm. And so for very entry-level clients for whom You know, you have to be very careful around lockups, right? People need to really understand that. And I I imagine this is like a sliding scale. You start to do education around this and you say, okay, if you can, if you are able to lock up your money for three months, you get this. If you're able to lock up your money for a year, you get this lock up your money for more, you get more and and creating that clarity for people is very similar to creating the clarity around compounding um you know you're you're just able to offer much better securities um and much more uh um yeah much better returns um if you do that um and then um And then obviously there's the size, the bigger, the more agents you have, the more you're able to pool capital, the Mm -hmm. more purchasing power you have. Um, And so you're able to diversify um, much more successfully and you're able to um, negotiate like much more efficient services, much lower fees, Um, everything gets better. Mm -hmm. Zooming out now pitching this to the infinity board. how do we make Invisible a better and better business? Well, you can. You want the income statement to increase in revenue and increase in profits. You want um, the balance sheet to increase in cash and increase in equity value. You want cash flows to shift in your favor. Now let's focus on the cash flow statement. How do you make cash flow shift in your favor? There's two ways. You can get clients to pay you sooner and you could build minimums into your contracts and um, with teeth, and you can make them multi-year contracts. And so you can say that there's a break clause or an exit clause and like you have to pay this minimum of this amount per month and we're gonna be working together for a minimum of three years or whatever, you do that. And you can change the payment terms. You could say, all right, you know, if it's really client favorable, it's net 30. So uh, you do the work, you send an invoice, and then they have 30 days to pay you, which is really net 60 from our perspective. It'd be a terrible deal for us because, Mm -hmm. like, we do the work for a month, we pay people, and then we wait for 30 days. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you do that sort of model, you end up having to finance that working capital off balance sheet or borrow. Or you can negotiate for net zero. We get paid the day we send the invoice. Oh. Or you can negotiate for cash up front. You get paid before you do the work based on a scope or an estimate of the work and then trued up afterwards. So, Or you can get paid based off of historicals. You can say, we want a quarter of this year's work paid up front right, uh, or half of this year's work paid up front, And the more negotiating leverage you have, the more you can get clients to pay you sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Some businesses have a ton of negotiating leverage. Software businesses, for whatever reason, are able to get like incredible upfronts in exchange for discounts. You give the client a discount on the rate, the client's willing to give you cash up front in order to get that discount lower their costs. That's on the accounts receivable side (AR). What about AP, accounts payable? Mm-hmm. Our biggest cost by far is labor. Mm-hmm. We have SaaS costs, yes. We don't have an office. We don't have we. We have compute costs, but by far our biggest cost is labor, and it's actually not partner labor, although that's expensive. Agent, it's agent labor. It's. Almost 50% of our income statement is COGS. So think about that. If you we're gonna end this year hopefully at a hundred mil run rate. So that means fifty million dollars a year are going to agents around the world. Stuart, if you walked into the doors of J.P. Morgan Private Bank. And you said, hello, I'm a client. I have an income of $50 million a year. Next year, my income will be $100 million a year. The year after that, my income will be $200 million a year. What sort of service do you think you'd receive? Uh, Excellent. World-class service. (laughs) But because these people are uh, in 80 countries around the world, and that is being split up you know, across thousands yeah. of people, they're getting terrible service. And so from our perspective, we don't wanna negotiate with our labor in the traditional sense where we're like, okay, how do we improve cash flows? Well, we could just pay agents every month instead of every two weeks, or pay agents every three months instead of every two weeks. Like that'd be terrible, right? But the way I look at it and the way I got the idea was just thinking about it as a sliding scale. Some agents are hand to mouth. They want the cash sooner and it's much better that they get the cash sooner from us uh, than working with like a payday lender or a shark. Yeah. offer terrible terms. So we would still need to offer in order to offer cash up front, like right away instead of every two weeks, uh, we would still need we have a cost of capital. We'd still need to improve our margins in exchange for hurting our cash flows. But that's, that's actually, I think, a minority of agents in the long run. In the long run, I think a majority of agents end up being in this place where they want to build wealth. Mm. And they can build wealth, obviously, by being at the company for a long period of time and getting equity in our the trust-slash-pension fund we're setting up. Mm. Um, as the company scales to a trillion, we're allocating up to 10% to a, of, at the equity to a fund for agents. And we're still in the process of setting that up. It's a big lift, Um, but that's like one way you build wealth. Another way is you get promoted, and you increase your pay, and you do more advanced forms of labor. So we pay you based on speed, quality, and complexity. So the more complex the work, the more you're going to get paid, climb the the ranks, basically. participate more and more in like opportunities like our apprentice program to join the partnership, et cetera. We've promoted agents to partners before, but then there's also just good old manage your money. Well, Hmm. and that is, that is one of the things that like, it's not just an education problem. If we taught agents, everything we know about compound interest Hmm. and about financial management, they would still be stuck if they don't have access to the financial products. Yeah,
0: that's beautiful.
1: And um, and so the way I look at it is, again, pitching the board of Infinity, is how do we build in Helmer's terms, a cornered resource? And if you're an agent and you've got a job offer from some normal 20th century BPO and a job offer from Invisible, how do we make it increasingly a no-brainer for you to take Invisible's job offer? Um, and one of the ways is you offer three. Th- basically, there's three core things that we're we're doing to do that. The first is financial services, and this is Ultimate Bank. You just heard it. Yeah. The second is um, community networking agents together and building this wonderful global network and this community that can eventually turn into a 21st century trade union and the third is um training and education uh which is a separate business unit i'll I'll pitch separately but basically we look at our our corporate training program uh not just as a way to train agents to do work for our clients hard skills training but soft skills training including a full liberal arts education it's a competitor to harvard and um and we're building knowledge workers for the 21st century. So that is, that. those are the three basic pillars of our agent value prop above and beyond the core economic opportunity to work here. And so again, one, one more time, um, financial services and education, uh, community and uh, collective bargaining power, um, uh, unionization, not against the company, but against vendors out there in the world. Uh, and then third, um, uh, training and education, including like, you know, our own corporate university. So, um, so, so le- basically learning finance and community. So this is the finance piece. Um, the amazing thing, Stuart, is that if we build this and we build it right, it ultimately ends up being valuable for partners as well. Um, and as a matter of fact, I just view the the services the partners need are on a continuum the same way that like JP Morgan has Chase for normal people, yeah. and then they have JP Morgan private bank, they have sort of uh, something in between, which is like like uh, Chase has some high-end premium thing. And then for people that are above a certain level of wealth, there's JP Morgan private bank. That continuum is the same thing here. Partners, depending on their tier, are building, you know, are also need financial services. I don't want my partners spending time racking their brains to try to find how do I tax optimize? Mm-hmm. How do I set up my family office? How do I um uh diversify my wealth? How do I compound? I, I want as much as possible to set them up. And um, we call the full family office setup Pendragon, and that's like. Our, you know, we almost want to build a multifamily office and pool our capital together. Cause after all, I've got to set up a family office for myself. Why make you go through all the work to do it on your own when you could just tag along?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then we also have the need to manage our own capital as a business, our treasury. Um, so our treasury is small. By the end of the year, we'll be maybe 12 million. But by the end of next year, hopefully much larger and the year after much larger and larger and larger. Once you start to get to the 50 million range, you know, you you actually have to think about things like inflation Uh uh, and uh, and return. Um, And you want to, you know, uh, if the Fed rate is five percent, you know, you want to and inflation is whatever it is you want to keep up. Um, How do you do that? Uh, through really great treasury practices. And part of those practices include the allocation committee making, you know, having a smart, smart options Um, for, and so this is, this is very synergistic with that. Like, how do you baseline against Vanguard? Um, Seek alpha beyond that Uh, for shorter term cash. How do you find the right securities for the cash that you want to keep liquid? This is a set of problems that we need to build or solve already for our own business. And this is a sort of super is very synergistic. Um, so the right, again, we're looking for a CEO for Ultimate Bank. The right CEO is a um, uh, already has entrepreneurial experience, uh, is um, financially literate um, mm-hmm. even if they're self-educated but they they get it they understand everything i just said and 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 can probably run circles around me hopefully
0: um
1: and uh have enough financial industry expertise to like go through the exercise of building a bank even if it's just a virtual bank at first on top of banking as a service but building the brand and 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 uh the financial products and the financial education around those products and the ultimate service journey for the the agents. And then also the ability to think about how that continuum works as somebody goes from being a totally entry-level person to having a small amount of wealth, a medium-sized amount of wealth, a large amount of wealth, a very large amount of wealth, um, and how the need for different financial services grows over time. Um, And doing this in a worldwide format where you've got um, people in different countries with very different need sets. Um, Our attitude is always to uh, not build where we can buy. In other words, the goal is not to compete, to quote Peter Thiel, competition is for losers. Um, So we don't wanna build a vertically integrated bank if there's a better banking as a service option. In the same way, we don't wanna create a financial product if we can find a financial product that can deliver the same value. Um, The goal is really really just to, again, it's very similar to the invisible thesis. How do you provide an end-to-end solution that stitches together and integrates all these things into something that has never existed before? Brilliant. In order to build a corner resource. Again, think of it from the partner's perspective. You could leave, but like Ultimate Bank is managing your money so well. Like, you know, why would you leave? And that's, by the way, an interesting question is like, you know, it's... uh, you would you it's not actually a form of lock in in the sense that like um coercive. Yeah, yeah. Like you yeah. you'll be able to leave you still have access to your funds and, and you'll still be an ultimate bank client if you leave. This is a commercialization opportunity. Ultimately, ultimate bank will ultimately ultimate bank will um uh, uh commercialize and offer its services to other companies and other people in the world. Um, but uh the same way that like, you know you don't need to have a macbook in order to have an iphone it just it's going to interoperate better that's cool this is great yeah i gotta go to yoga yeah uh, but um i'm not in a rush but but i i hope it was valuable and thank you so much for doing it
0: sure absolutely let me give you one more thing you're talking about the labor unions and it's really funny you may not be aware of this but in lombardy uh in Italy, uh, the first time a university started, the reason why we call it a university isn't because of uh, uh, universal; it's because of union. They all all the people were uh, in the dorm or living separately, and they all started to band together in order to get better deals on rent and other things. That was the start of a university. Was uh, was labor unions fascinating?
1: 1900s, yeah. fascinating. Wow, I love that you know that. <laughs> um, I hope you don't mind doing this more with me. I found it really That's good. good. Like I think the ultimate outcome is going to be so good. Just make sure it gets to a ton of people. Like yep. it gets to advisors, partners, the yeah, board, yeah. Yeah. uh, business unit heads. And I think that like hearing me pitch Everest, hearing me pitch uh foundation, hearing me pitch Realm, like there's so many, so many that I haven't pitched yet. So yep. um and I'll put it all
0: into one notion document. People will be
1: people, people will be like literally mind blown. They're like, wait, he's pitching sales as a service. He's pitching uh um um cs as a service like these you know they'll be like i've never heard of unstoppable before what's that (laughs) yeah
0: totally done. have a great class bye see you
1: hey thanks for tuning into plain sight presented by invisible if you liked what you heard be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network if you're interested in learning more about
0: how invisible helps teams cut costs and scale visit our website at invisible.co see you next time